is Kutsia Naki, and welcome to another episode of Down to the Struts. Today, we'll listen in on my conversation with Amy Hemrai. Amy is a professor of medicine, health, society, and American studies at Vanderbilt University. They also direct the Critical Design Lab. As we begin to imagine a future beyond the coronavirus pandemic, Amy and I had the opportunity to reflect back on the role that technology has played during this time of social distancing and isolation, its particular impact on disabled people, and how we might reimagine the ways in which we communicate, work, and play moving forward. This was a wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you find it as illuminating as I did. Okay, let's get down to it. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for joining me today on Down to the Struts. I'd love it if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to direct the Critical Design Lab at Vanderbilt. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Amy Hemrai. I use they, them pronouns. I am an associate professor of medicine, health, and society at Vanderbilt where I also direct the Critical Design Lab, and I am a disability studies scholar. My work focuses on accessibility and universal design, and I wrote a book called Building Access, Universal Design and the Politics of Disability, which was published in 2017. So the way that I came to direct the Critical Design Lab, first I should say what the lab is. We are a multi-institutional collaborative of disabled designers and design researchers and also non-disabled allies. And we work on issues of disability design and technology from the perspective of disability culture. And that's our critical perspective. So we're thinking about technology not as like a functional fix for disability, but all of the different ways that disabled people use technology to connect and to um, create art and to navigate the built environment. The lab came out of a project that started in 2014, which was really in my first year at Vanderbilt. It was my second semester. And we were working on accessibility mapping because the university didn't have its own accessibility maps and there was an ice storm and we were trying to have a disability studies event and there was no information about accessible parking. So from that grew first a project called Mapping Access that was really asking questions about who gets to access university spaces and what sorts of questions do people ask about accessibility in university spaces, who gets left out of how we typically think of like ADA accommodations. And then the lab also just started to admit people from other places other than Vanderbilt as well. Um, And we grew and became like a space for thinking and questioning and designing and building kind of like all over 
North America and Europe. And we do, you know, many different kinds of projects. We host dance parties. We are building some online archives. We're curating some art exhibits and there are design considerations and all of these. And of course, we also have a podcast that's called Contra, which I host that's on disability and design. Thanks for that introduction, Amy, and I will highly recommend the Contra podcast. I'm an avid listener and encourage all of the listeners of this podcast to to definitely check it out. Uh, I've definitely learned a lot from it, and I appreciate that this project started with trying to, to map access on a college campus. I remember being a disabled student and having disability services and accessibility services be a primary driving force for my selection of a college, and I often found a lot of those offices or those services to be sort of not very holistic and, you know, not always meeting all the needs of the variety of people that might need access to different things. So I think it's great that you built that from the from the university and, and college kind of framework. So in looking at your website, I noticed that you talk about your socio-spatial practice. Can you tell me a little bit about what you mean by socio-spatial? Uh, Sociospatial is a kind of hybrid term that I use to do a few different things. One is to point out that scholarship, like scholarly work around accessibility, has a component that's focused on people, which is the socio part, like the social, and also a component that's focused on space and the built environment, and that's the spatial part. And there's a specific reason why I put those two together, which is that my work encompasses both writing and design and a set of strategies that come from what we would think of as kind of like uh, performance art and also architecture. So in art practice, there's this concept of, of social practice, which is basically when artists use methods that derived from social science and community engagement to make interventions into the world. So they may design some sort of like interactive event, or they may stage an intervention into public space. And a lot of that kind of work is really informing what we do in the lab and my own design practice as well. And there's a similar concept in architecture of spatial practice as not just the building of buildings, but the, the ways that we create uh, spaces and objects, like design objects, that call into question norms that exist and sort of disrupt life as we know it in some way. So in bo both art and architecture, these concepts of spatial practice and, and social practice are critical ideas. They are um, a set of methods for going in and like disrupting the way that people usually think about things. And another term for this in the design world is critical design, uh, which is design that's not just functional, it's not just stuff that we use. It's also asking us to um, think of different questions and to look at the things that we've taken for granted and ask how we can imagine and understand them differently. And so when I use sociospatial practice on my website, part of what I'm doing there is showing people that the work of a scholar is also to make things and to change material things in the world, in addition to writing and, and talking and teaching and those kinds of things. That's great. So it's it's you're 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 
sort of tangible role in the physical world and the built environment, as well as your role as sort of an educator uh, melding together. That's really, that's really, really interesting. And it's a perfect segue into um, the the meat of our conversation today, which will focus on access during the pandemic. I think that the concept of critical design has really come into play for everyone who is experiencing the pandemic, particularly with respect to technology and having to find totally new ways to communicate, to educate, to work to be entertained when this this event has kind of disrupted our normal way of doing all of those things. And in particular, I think that technology has transformed the lives of disabled people during the pandemic in that it has allowed people access they wouldn't have had otherwise. But I, from your perspective and your socio-spatial practice and your study of critical design, I would be interested to hear your thoughts about what had sort of the benefits of that been for disabled people in particular, and maybe also perhaps what some of the barriers have been during the pandemic. That's such a great question. And I think this is a good time for us to be reflecting on it because, um, you know, we're recording this right now in December. So uh, the pandemic in the United States, at least, has been going on since March, as far as we know. So, you know, the first thing I'll say is that a lot of the technologies that people have become reliant on in the U.S., probably like throughout North America and, and other places, is these, you know, technologies of remote participation, uh, so things like video conferencing, telephone, uh, all sorts of like apps that let you connect with other people. A lot of these um, tools and methods are things that we've been using in disability activism and disability community for a long time internally. So it's part of disability culture for people to FaceTime or have a Zoom meeting or to have an option for like a hybrid meeting. I can't even think of how many times over the last like 10 or 15 years I've been at a disability activist meeting where we've also had a live stream, for example. And so using technology remotely to participate is something that some of us, not everyone, um, but some of us are pretty comfortable doing. And like in my work and in my teaching, um, thinking about accessibility, like my transition to teaching online was not super onerous because I'd already built out courses with accessibility embedded in the course management software. So I didn't need to like go back and learn how to caption videos and that sort of thing because they were already there. My lab, because it's um, people kind of joining from like six or seven different time zones, like we do all our stuff online. So just kept doing that. And, but at the same time, there's like a just, there are a number of justice centered questions that we have to address um, because the opportunity and ability to access things remotely is often denied to many of us. So for years and years and years, people have been requesting to, um, you know, instead of coming to a conference in person, because conferences are really expensive, they're very inaccessible, there are sometimes like exposures that people don't have, or they can't be around other people, like if they're chronically ill or have environmental sickness. Um, and like, you know, those requests have often been denied. And usually we hear things like, 
you know, the internet's not strong enough or whatever, like we can't zoom people in. We don't know how to do that. We don't have the right technology. And so there was a hashtag in the early part of the pandemic. It was hashtag accessibility for abled's, um, which was pointing <laughs> out all the ways that when non-disabled people suddenly decided that, you know, life itself depended on participating remotely and doing work remotely and stuff that it like, you know, it felt like within a matter of weeks, everyone had figured it out technologically. And so those feasibility arguments were not as good anymore. But, you know, in many cases, people were sort of like reinventing the wheel or figuring things out for the first time that disabled people had already figured out. And that that's not to say that there are not also technological barriers that have increased. There's this thing that Lewis Mumford says about technology, where you know, he's describing like the ambivalence of the machine, that technology can both like liberate us and it can kind of like trap us, and constrain us. And that's because it's a thing that, you know, people have designed and it it's not always design that keeps everybody in mind. And so teaching online, for example, enables me to not get sick and get exposed to COVID, which is a very important baseline thing. And also doing it within the amount that I've been doing it and the amount of screen time that I have is like exacerbating my migraines. And it's like really hard to pay attention for that long. That doesn't mean that it's bad to participate remotely or that we shouldn't have remote participation. What it means is that we all have to be actively involved and constantly designing new ways of doing things and doing them creatively. As an example, in my lab, we host a kind of quarterly dance party called Remote Access. And the first one we had was in March. And the, the purpose of this gathering, which happens on Zoom, is to use all of the tools and skills of disability culture for social connection and celebration. And this is different than like being on Zoom all day for work. If you were to go to a party outside of the digital space, you would, you know, maybe like there'd be music or there'd be dancing and snacks and food and you'd go into a corner and chat with someone. And those are types of activities that are expected when you're in person. But like in a virtual space, there are all sorts of other ways that we can invent to interact with each other. And so when you come to a remote access dance party, there's stuff happening on the screen. There's an artist showing their work on the screen. And then there's like a, a line that you can tap into and hear the image descriptions. And there's like a live chat um, where people are interacting and then kind of back channeling each other. They're also doing image descriptions or sound descriptions. There is a DJ, there are people talking, there are people showing their outfits and image describing themselves. Like all of these things are happening using practices that come from like blind and deaf communities. There's, there's uh, ASL interpretation, there's live captioning. That is like what we do in order to celebrate and party together. And so it's kind of aestheticizing these practices that otherwise seem to have a very functional purpose. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of watching 
and archiving the ways that people are coming up with to do things like this, like really innovative classroom strategies for teaching online or figuring out ways to like help students feel connected to you, even though you're so far away from each other and build community in the classroom and those sorts of things. We just got a grant to build like an online, like a digital archive of remote participation, which we'll start, we'll be working on in 2021. And the idea behind that is to document all the ways that disabled people used technology for remote access before and during the pandemic, um, thinking even beyond Zoom and stuff like that. I'm thinking like, how did people use email newsletters or, or print newsletters or correspondence courses or phone trees? Like all of these things were ways of using technology to connect remotely. And, and it does seem like people who are having kind of an easier time with like the social isolation of, of the pandemic often have like exposure to communities where those types of uses were already happening. That's great. I really love the remote access dance party. You have inspired me to try to have one myself. That sounds so fun. <laughs> um, so one of the things I have observed as well as you know, the pandemic began and everything, everyone was kind of scrambling to move everything online. Some things have, are developing or have developed and there was a kind of an access journey. So for example, my office was using some types of technology at work that weren't perfectly accessible. So I am blind and I'm a screen reader user and there were lots of glitches and things weren't working. And, but I felt that my battle, which, you know, as disabled people, we often are fighting all the time to, to make things more accessible. You know, there became a greater imperative to make sure it was accessible because I needed it to do work, but really brought to the fore for me the fact that access is not always baked in. I think Zoom is a good example of access being better baked in, I think, than mo some other platforms or, or things I was using. And then I, I was recently reading for, for another example, this article in Wired about proximity chatting, which is this idea of trying to simulate that, what you were describing about the kind of cocktail party feel of a gathering where you can move between tables. So in these proximity chat apps, Gather is an example of one. You have an avatar and you kind of move around this room and you can go from here to there. And the article didn't mention whether the, the technology was accessible or what accessibility features it had at all. It wasn't part of that conversation. And I actually had the opportunity to attend an event using this type of platform. And I was, as a blind person, I was very lost <laughs> because it's a a bit visual and there wasn't I wasn't really sure how to navigate in that environment like I felt like it was it was actually making virtual all of the things that are hard for a blind person at a cocktail party mm -hmm. in other words so I'm curious to get your thoughts about that and I think that it's safe to say a lot of these tools that we're using to connect now in the pandemic are here to stay that for better and also for worse they're there but what do you think is the best approach to have Having this holistic concept of access being built in from the beginning and making it kind of part of the conversation. 
It's such a great question. And I think that this is an issue where like the pandemic has really like highlighted and exacerbated many of the inequalities that existed before, right? And we we find that um, in all sorts of spheres in addition to the digital. So, you know, I'll say that like digital, like the design of digital tools and products, that is a field where... Um, on the one hand, you have lots of people who are concerned with the user experience. And so they are thinking about like, how do people use this thing? But the understanding of the user is often very limited and that results in lots of exclusions because certain types of things are understood to be unnecessary good and any accessibility that is built into them comes later. So for example, a lot of these like social and collaboration tools, they really, the, especially the ones that are trying to reproduce something that exists outside of the digital space, they often do that through visual means because the screen is understood as like the medium of interaction. And it doesn't have to be that way. Like I'm sure that you know about like there are video games that are sound only, for example, that are designed by blind video game designers. There are all sorts of tools that produce haptic feedback and like rumbles and things like that. But those are not the, the ways that these sorts of collaborative and social tools are imagined. And so in rendering a social space like a cocktail party as a space that can only be seen on a screen, then that space like a three-dimensional and textural and sound and other sensory aspects of that space are flattened. Even if they are present, like there might be like the sound of the clinking of glasses or something like that, the navigation and the wayfinding through that space is not rendered in equivalent illustrative quality as the visual. Um, another example of this that I can think of that comes up in my work is there are a lot of these like digital whiteboard platforms where if you're teaching, you can send your students the link and people can put up like post-it notes and they can write on stuff, but there's no, there's no screen reader accessibility for those. And I've raised this issue many times when people are kind of like offering up these technologies. And what I feel like often happens, even though it's unstated, is they're like, oh, we'll just use this until someone needs an accommodation. And then it's like, okay, but then you've built your whole pedagogical strategy, your teaching strategy around a tool that is like inherently exclusionary when you could have chosen something else that, you know, you could have used like a Google slide and you could have used some other sort of like collaborative tool or document, or you could have assigned someone to do the audio descriptions for this whiteboard as it's like unfolding. And to me, these are social problems and they're relational issues. They're, they're about not just what technologies do we use, but how do we want to um, interact with each other around the use of these technologies? And what are people for some reason unwilling to do because they see it as like more work or whatever, when it's really just like a question of interaction. And so in a lot of the work that I do, like when I get asked to do workshops on accessible teaching and stuff like that, a lot of what I'm really emphasizing in those workshops is like, this is really just a question of like learning how to 
interact in better ways and being able to hear when someone says to you or understand when someone says to you like this is what I need um, and like what to do with that and um, how to like engage in an interactive way to make sure that access needs are met. I will say that something that's happening during the pandemic is that there are a lot of new access needs that are emerging for people that may not have been known to the to such an extent earlier. But there are also just so many, like in the example that you were giving, like screen reader accessibility, like that is sort of like the foundation of web accessibility. And so for a platform not to have that at this point, after like 20 years of people trying to figure that out, like that is pretty not okay. And all the time there are kind of like new versions of that, that are emerging um, that, you know, we just need to be able to like collect information about and add to the ways that we think about what it means to build in accessibility. And also what I've noticed both before and during the pandemic is this reactive approach to design. So I've had so many instances where my you know, my workplace or another organization I'm interacting with or what have you will adopt a technology platform but won't have gone ahead and user tested it or made sure it was accessible. And then you have to do a lot of fixes on the back end that are often more expensive and more time consuming than just having thought about it from the get go. And oftentimes, because I guess we've had a lot of discussion on this podcast about the ADA, what, what a powerful tool it's been, but some of the unforeseen consequences of the way the law is structured, which is to say, the conversation about access doesn't start until one individual identifies as having a disability or having particular types of needs, and then you're forced to work backwards from there. And And I find myself, and I'm interested to hear your perspective on this as well, I find myself, you know, constantly engaging in this refrain of, let's bake it in. Why don't we just have captioning for every event, whether we know someone there needs it or not? So that person doesn't even have to identify the need. It's already there for them. It's built into the design of whatever experience we're curating online. Yeah. um, So I can kind of like zoom out and talk about this historically a little bit, because this is what my book is about, asking this question of like, why is accessibility not built into everything already? And what were the conditions that made that so? And what I argue in my book is that accessibility isn't just about putting things into place or like designing something It's also about what we know or what we think we know or what we claim to know about disability. And at different times historically, different access needs were understood or not understood or legible or illegible. So, so much of the ADA is focused on physical disability. And that's because the research that was done on physical disability for like 50 years informed all these accessibility codes and, you know, really like shaped what kind of uh, buildings we could imagine having and like what we could imagine as like a baseline, like having a ramp or having a curb cut. But that alone is not enough for meeting the access needs of people who have 
physical disabilities. And I think the same thing exists for other types of access needs that like without knowing what they are and who needs them, very often there exists kind of like a, a norm or a presumption that like it's not necessary. There are also different norms around built-in access in different communities. So in some cases, someone may say there should be ASL interpretation at every event. And also there are norms that sometimes in some spaces say that if there's not a deaf person present, there should not be ASL interpretation. So there is not consensus within disability communities about what built-in accessibility means. And there's the additional issue of like what people think disability even is. So, and like how they understand the needs of disabled people and who they believe and what kind of information they use. So for example, like with some of my disabilities, like there are things that are so not understood or there are things that people's lived experiences reveal that are at odds with what biomedical perspectives might be. And so if someone is trying to think about how to do built-in accessibility for someone like me, they may do something that actually ends up hurting me because if they follow a certain version of uh, or a certain narrative about what those access needs are. And so access isn't something in the same way that access can't just be achieved with a checklist. It can't actually be built in. It requires relationship and negotiation between people. Um, and that's a really hard thing to achieve on a public scale because the public is where we need to be anticipated um, in order to like, you know, access all sorts of things um, and where we also often experience the most barriers. But if we think about like our private lives and how we negotiate access there, it gives us some tools for thinking about this. Like, you know, if I, if I like have an access need, but I don't explain it to someone and then I'm like upset at them for not like meeting my need, not only did they not know, but they may not have known like how to respond to it. And so usually like in my life, I want to be very specific with them about like what I need in this particular circumstance. And I don't want them to assume on my behalf because sometimes that leads to um, things that are actually kind of dangerous. But there are like other cases where someone may be like, anytime we talk, I need you to do X. And that can establish kind of like a precedent or a culture for how access will happen between those people. And so there's like this relational component in addition to the part about like, you know, what can we really know about access and how do we define and understand and study disability and all of that shapes whether or not accessibility can be built in. Yes, I think in public spaces, it's hard because you are not always completely sure who your user is going to be. And it's hard to, and one wonders, is there, is there some kind of baseline that is, th that the things that can be anticipated or built in like a ramp or something like that? You know, I think it's a, a tug of war. And I often struggle too with, you know, sometimes even in my relationships with people as a blind person, Sometimes I feel that, you know, why should I have to explain X, Y, Z constantly? 
um, you know, why can't people educate themselves? But then at the same time, a term that I've sort of abandoned using, but I am visually impaired, so I have some usable vision and people take the word blind to mean a certain thing and make assumptions based on that. But my experience of vision loss is very different from everyone else pretty much because I think it's very different. And so it's fair when people say, no, you know, what specifically do you need? Um, Because your experience isn't exactly the same as someone in a different kind of condition with respect to their whatever kind of usable vision they have or don't have. So I think that's a hard balance to strike. And I'm so glad that you we're able to kind of go through the contours of that as you describe it in your book. I think most people don't think about it in in those terms. Moving forward from the pandemic, as we were talking about earlier, I don't think these tools and the things that have changed about the way we interact are going to entirely go away, um, you know, once there's a vaccine or once things become some semblance of, I guess, normal as a, as a, loaded word to use. What lessons do you think we've learned from this and and what would you like to see moving forward in terms of access and, and critical design? I would like just a lot more flexibility um, and willingness to adapt on the part of people who have the resources or institutions that have the decision-making capabilities of shaping, especially like how large groups of people are doing stuff, but even also in interpersonal interactions, because that sort of quick transition to remote participation that happened like seven or eight months ago, that was in large part, like because of a willingness of people to be flexible and adaptive. And it occurred under exceedingly ableist conditions. And so I, I hope that what does not happen is that the pandemic ends and then people are like, oh, well, we're never doing online teaching anymore, or we don't need that anymore, or we don't need online conferences, et cetera. I don't think that that will actually happen because we've observed what is possible now and people have come up with all sorts of creative strategies or doing things remotely, but I do sometimes get a sense in conversations I have around policy kinds of things that there's this idea that there will be an after and we'll just like revert back to the world as it was. And I just really hope that that doesn't happen. I hope that we maintain this kind of sensibility around like, okay, like how do we figure out what works best for all of us on an ongoing basis? And negotiate access and, and, you know, compensate people fairly for the work that accessibility requires and be open toward understanding conflicting access needs or new access needs that emerge with like skillfulness and grace and all of that stuff. So that would be my ideal. And I don't know the extent to which it'll happen. But I hope that we'll at least be able to like remind folks that they were just doing that like a year and a half ago or whatever, and that it's not like a huge burden to engage in this, that we've all been training to do it. And that if that does not happen, I hope that, and I do think that this will be the case that disabled people will continue kind of like hacking and tinkering with technology in the ways that we do uh, to create the kinds of access that we need. 
you know, the the real hope is that we as disabled people are not alone in that anymore, that there are other other people in the world who are have seen the value of flexibility and have seen the value of reimagining the way we do things and participate with us. So it's not just kind of a siloed effort. Yeah, I sure hope so. I think that um, it, because, you know, like we don't know there'll be another pandemic or some other circumstance that requires us to continue living the way that we are now. And so it will take everyone's participation and allyship and things like that to get us through all of that. Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic and fascinating conversation, Amy. I I really appreciate your time and, and I'm so excited to share this with our listeners. Thank you so much. And thanks for doing this great podcast. I've really been enjoying listening to it. Thank you so much. And I've been enjoying listening to yours. So the feeling is very much mutual. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Down to the Struts. This podcast would not be possible without the energy and creativity of Anna Wu Adrian Kong, Alana Nevins, and Avery Annapol. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you love to listen. You can also find more information about our project at our website, www.downtothestruts.com. Thanks and stay tuned for the next episode of season two so we can get back down to it.